it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This is a crowd podcast. Rosenberg, H Bomb, Sugar Ray, Pam and Jump, Brando, The King and I, and the Catcher in the Rye, Eisenhower, Vaccine, England's got a new queen, Marciano. Marciano. You know it. What a fighter. Hello and welcome to episode 25 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that's history through a Billy Joel number one hit. All the people, places and moments that shaped our world. The ones racing for space, turning up the Cold War heat, building things up and knocking them down. I'm Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Katie, should we start some fires? Oh yes, let's start a fire. Is that where I have to start talking now? (laughs) If you like, Katie. Okay, here's what I'm going to say. Today we are talking about Another heavy hitter, literally heavy hitter, heavyweight champ, Rocky Marciano. The original Rocky. The original Not the Rocky. sliced alone Rocky, okay. the proper original the, the Rocky. Real, except no substitutes. This guy is the real deal. Now, this is what I know about him. He put his opponents in a coma, in the hospital, and he personally accounted for at least 13 permanent retirements. Youch. This is what I call leaving an impression on the public. Now, I barely know anything about people who punch for a living. (laughs) This is more your area, Tom Fordyce. This is my game. This is, but we have a person who really controls the subject. He is Steve Bunce, a.k.a. Buncey, the voice of British boxing. Hello, Buncey. Yeah, how do the pair of you doing? Yeah. What a start, though. <laughs> I mean, if we stopped now, we'd have a great Rocky Marciano pod already. We yeah, really would, I this swear. is it. I mean, why, why gild the lily? What is distinctive about him as a boxer? Uh, his size, he's a heavyweight, but he's not doesn't have heavyweight dimensions other than the fact that he weighs just about heavyweight then, not even now. Now, he wouldn't even be a heavyweight. There's a division called cruiserweight and he wouldn't even be a big cruiserweight. He'd be like low, he'd be 10 pounds inside the cruiserweight limit. I think he'd actually slim down and get down to light heavy, so two weights below heavyweight. What's most distinctive about him is the name works. The name is beautiful. Let's get that right, Rocky. If his name was Thomas or John or, or Bill or Steve, I mean, Stevie Marciano's not rocking. I'm sorry, it's not happening. <laughs> So Rocky works. And what's more, when you analyse his fights from start to finish, and I mean start to finish, there's so much blood and gore. You talk there about concussions and comas and permanently retiring people. There's there's one story where he walks 
with the guy on a stretcher to two blocks in New York because it's easier to walk the guy on a stretcher to the hospital than it is to put the guy in an ambulance and try and drive him at nine at night through New York traffic <laughs> to the hospital. I mean, you can't invent this stuff. It's true, unfortunately. So what's, what's great about him is he provided action. And he came from that glorious period, that glorious black and white period in the 50s. It's the last point in sport where the images are captured in black and white with proper cameras. They're the greatest photographs of sport. 1950s football, 1950s soccer, 1950s baseball, 1950s swimming. Look at some of the swimming pictures from the 56 Olympics. Everything in black and white because those men and women then, they had to frame it. So we're left with these unforgettable images of Rocky Marciano. They're like oil paintings. I defy you to look at 20 of his pictures. They're like oil paintings. And that's because the men at ringside, men like Charles Hoff, they were geniuses. So part of it is that we remember it because we've been left with these glorious images. Mm. And so what do you see in these iconic pictures? He's on the smaller side for a heavyweight, but what's his build? What's his look? What's his stance? Well, he's five foot ten. He comes in about 13 and a half stonish. By comparison, that makes him three or four inches shorter than Muhammad Ali and a stone and a half lighter. It makes him 10 inches shorter than Tyson Fury and about seven stone lighter, six and a half stone lighter. But what he did, or rather what a man called Charlie Goldman did, here's a guy who seemed to have permanently been 70 years of age and he was a genius when he dealt with fighters now his advantage over Rocky was that he was 5 foot 1 so the two of them could talk at the same height and Charlie Goldman when he took one look at Rocky he said your arms are too short you're too small you're not heavy enough and you take too many punches and you're clumsy. You've got absolutely no chance. Dot, dot, dot. Stick with me. I'll turn you into a world heavyweight champion. And that's what, that's what Charlie Goldman did. He crafted and made this perfectly poised five foot ten, 13 stone, seven pounds fighting machine. A beast. One of the most perfect fighting machines. Small, sure, but perfect in every way. I feel like we need to rewind a little bit to the start of his life here, Katie, because it's a very picaresque immigrant's tale, Steve, isn't it, with, <laughs> with Rocky? Because he's not born Rocky. He's Rocco Francis Marchegiano. He's the son of a shoemaker. He has pneumonia at 18 months, survives it. He grows up in a nowhere sort of town called Brockton in Massachusetts. It's not the sort of place... Nope. That produces people but who are going to be known across the world. But it's a shoemaking capital. And his father was a shoemaker from back in the old country. So it's a shoemaking capital. What you just described there, were you reading from Mario Puzo, the godfather there? Okay. <laughs> Immigrant family in a tenement, about 15 of them in one room. Dad's a hard worker and the, and the youngest son gets pneumonia. It's perfect. You, you were reading from his pages. It's, it's beyond an immigrant towel. Let's get that absolutely right. And, and, he, and his brothers and sisters and family, we don't quite know because he was quite proud when he told stories of Marciano about his early life. And because he came to boxing so late, there isn't this great history of men on local papers who had covered him when he was 16, 17, 18, 19. He didn't turn pro till he was about 23 years of age. So we don't know exactly the circumstances of where he lived or what it was like. But we know one thing. It was poor. 
It was a tenement and there were dozens of Italian immigrants living in the same houses and in the same blocks. And he had absolutely nothing. And when I say absolutely nothing, I mean that buddy can you spare a dime nothing that existed there in the 20s and the 30s. We're not talking about, you know, didn't have an awful lot. We're talking about nothing. We're talking about absolutely nothing. And is that origin story absolutely essential, not only to where he gets to, but how he gets there? Because he's trying to escape that fate. He's trying to escape that past. You know, box. we love in boxing to deal in cliches and, and stories and sob stories. And some people on the outside start a yawn and go, oh, here we go again. But it's true. He's got nothing. Absolutely nothing. And it's not one of those things where he's spotted by someone in the local boxing club who takes him into the gym and says, you know what? If you don't train here, you'll end up killing someone. It's not even that. We don't even get to that level. This guy's so poor and so under the radar. In fact, when he has a half feeling about 17, 18 that he could box he spends a bit of time in one of the gyms and the guys assess him and this is a recurring theme in Rocky's life you're too short, you're too small you get hit too often and you've got terrible feet, you're clumsy, you're crude it's one of the recurring themes so it's almost like against all of this expert advice this kid, this immigrant kid with not a bean to rub together, somehow just keeps surviving, getting closer and getting closer to possibly fighting. What makes him so pig-headed, though? Because he's going against the grain. Like, he, he doesn't seem like he's naturally gifted, other than being kind of a force of nature in terms of his strength. People are going, no, talk to the hand, go away. Why does he show up for boxing? It's just desire and drive. He wants to play baseball because he wanted to be like Joe DiMaggio. That's what he wanted to be. He wanted to be like the great Joe DiMaggio. You know, the, the, the Italian-American hero to all Italian-Americans. And that's quite an important theme because in 10 years' time, by about the mid-50s and into the 60s, Rocky is the Joe DiMaggio. In fact, Rocky eclipses Joe DiMaggio and there's no one else inside the Italian-American orbit who's anywhere near as big as Rocky. And I would argue to this day... He was just an innocent big lump of a of a kid who was working really hard, wanted to be a baseball star. That fell away, and by that point, he was already doing a little bit of boxing. Let's get into some of his fights then, Steve, because he is a man who doesn't have ordinary fights. He's a man who doesn't have forgettable fights. No, there is Shakespearean levels of drama. Oh in all his big fights. There's comebacks, there's miracle punches. There's cuts like you wouldn't believe, Tom. Oh! Well, I don't know about... When, I, when I'm around fighters, especially old fighters, sometimes when I'm talking to them, I'll just try and take a glimpse at their eyebrows and just try and see if I know they've been cut. Like, you see, if you're next to Ricky Hatton, you know, you can see the testimony of about 150 stitches over the different scars on his face. He's had some, some have vanished with bits of plastic surgery, but they're, they're, I'd love to have looked at The Rock. There's not even a full record of the amount of stitches that man had, but he had them, you know, he has, he has cuts that are just quite... And just ridiculous cuts. I mean, gushers. I mean, you watch them in black and white, and you know it's claret. You know it's red, and it's and it's not a little line. I mean, his entire face. I mean, he's literally using the inside of his glove at points to wipe blood away. Rock just literally shakes his head like a ball that's just missed the matador, and wipes his face with the inside of his glove. You nailed it there, Tom. There is something fully Shakespearean about his fights. There are these little minor. That these plays, most of them are plays. In fact, there's at least 
probably, if we analysed it, and if I had the full record there directly in front of me, there's probably 15 that you could write a book, make a film, or talk about individually. We could literally do 10 or 15, 30-minute, fight-by-fight, Rocky Marcianos. You're absolutely right. With Rocky... You got what you got. Rocky was Rocky. He was going to deliver. I mean, so much so that Rocky just means a fighter, doesn't it? You know, who do you think you are? Rocky. It's a great name. You can't nick Rocky. You can't, you've got to be really careful if you call your children Rocky. I got away with Oscar Marvin. My wife has no idea. She thinks it's Marvin Gay and that's beautiful. But I couldn't have nicked Rocky. I'd love to have nicked Rocky. He delivered for you. When you start looking again, at the fights, and you realise the amount of times he was an un- a betting underdog. I was staggered by how the fights that I'd overlooked for years, how hard they were. I was really amazed. And then, and so I've got. So, so what I've actually got is a newfound. You think I'm excited? I might very well be because I feel like I've got this newfound love of Rocky Marciano that I didn't have a week ago before I did a little bit of work and I've got that from going back and looking and analysing these fights again realising wow I don't think I've done anything on Rocky for two years or five years or seven years and do you see his technique developing oh shoot yeah. of course yeah. just yeah. small things and I mean I mean tiny things we're just talking here about just a slight move the way he carries his right hand and just the way he showed he'd show something and then get closer like a feint he didn't have that in 50 in 51 yeah. he's getting it by 52 he's mastered it and, and there was something that Charlie Goldman, his coach, said, the five-foot-one-inch uh, geezer who was, I say, who was looked about 70, he said that Rocky was the best listener and the fastest learner he'd ever known. Oh, well, that's the key then. That, that's, you know yeah. what? That really is the key. That's, that's, I don't know what's on his headstone. I've never been to it, which is a, which is a grave error, excuse the pun, on my <laughs> oh, part. I've got oh. that. I know, quite like that. I, I thought you'd like that. <laughs> it wasn't intentional. But I, I'd, love to, I'd love to go because it should have that. It should have that because he really, it really was. And you can see it. Oh, yeah. They've, well, pe- they've made this fighter. People talk about Rocky's durable chin. What the heck does that mean? His shoulders, his neck, and his chin, they're not like the rest of us. Like, there's Tom's chin, there's Tom's neck, and there's Tom's shoulders. Same with you. With Rocky, he was a bit blurred. The, li- <laughs> the, the, lines, the, lines, are, the lines are slightly blurred. Just because between... it's kind of one big mass? Yeah, and certainly when he fought, because yeah. when he was fighting, he's, he's got his chin tucked into his I shoulders. I did notice that. Like, he kind of contracts, he sort of telescopes himself in and yeah. makes himself almost makes smaller. Him smaller. Well, that, that's, that yeah. was one of Charlie Goldman's. I tell you, picking up, you picked up on it. That's what Charlie Goldman had said. And Charlie Goldman said, don't worry about your height I'll make you smaller which is just a great Charlie Go- Goldman would just murdered the, uh, the the English language or what passed for the English language and he's he's left us with just some great quotes but the idea that he would shrink him and make him that much more invincible it's just so counter to everything it in sport. is so a lot of these performers and fighters athletes you always hear about them having these uh, very flamboyant outside lives. I mean, the last time we got together and we were talking about uh, Sugar, Sugar Ray. Ray, you know, that, was, that was that was his situation. But Rocky is different. His brother Peter said he lived like a monk and he was always mm. in training in great shape. And uh, Curtis the Hatcher Shepherd said Marciano's secret was his ability to avoid women and nightlife. Sounds like he's kind of a dull boy there. <laughs> yeah, he does. He, he did all of his fighting and stuff in the ring. He... He hated the idea of poverty. This goes back to his roots. He was so afraid of poverty. He was so afraid of being poor again. He was so afraid of having 
nothing. He never trusted banks. And yet he had a manager, uh, Al Vile, who was um, so connected with organised crime. I mean, just openly connected. I mean, mm. this is not even up for dispute. He was openly connected. Yeah. But Rocky always got paid in cash. So no matter who he thought... Even the biggest fight. Even 66,000 watching him knock out Joe Louis. That night, he went home with cash from the turnstiles. It's all hoarded. It was all hidden mm. under floorboards, in cupboards, under beds. So much so that there's, there's as much as two million that's never been accounted for. Mm. So he... Always, always, always got paid cash and he didn't want a lifestyle. He thought that if he was in a nightclub and he had to buy 10 people a drink and maybe tip some people, he hated that. He just didn't want us part with money. So that got him known as a miser, as a man who was very mean with his money. But what he did is he did different things with his money. I told you about the guy he escorted uh, to the hospital on the stretcher after the fight at Madison Square Garden, I believe. Well, he paid £2,500 worth of that guy's hospital bills in the 19, early 1950. I think it's 1950. That's an awful lot of money back then. So he, pay, he paid that. He also loaned out, apparently, bizarrely, with his close friends, with his friends that really really liked him, old friends from school, maybe even from his days in the army. He was forever giving out cash, mm. and he let, when he died, he left no will, so no money ever came back. But he didn't have or want that lifestyle. He loved mm. his wife, Barbara. He loved his kids. He loved the simple life. He loved barbecuing. I mean, getting back, basically, it's Tony Soprano without the without the dancing bar and without the killing people. He just <laughs> likes to be at home the whole time. Give him a break. He just wants to be around his wife, family man. <laughs> so we've eulogised him about him, Steve. Um, here's a couple of critiques you often hear about Rocky Marciano. The first one, we'll, we'll, we'll go go through them one at a time. Sure. The first one is that he never fought an opponent at their peak. So the big names he's beating were well past their best. Is that fair? Well, the, the, the Ezra Charles, Judge Joe Walcott and Joe Louis and Archie Moore, four of the greatest fighters uh, in history, those four, he, he managed to meet all of them when they were past their career. Now, here's the asterisk. They were still the best at that time. There aren't any other fighters here. This is one of those beautiful ideas. Oh, he never fought anybody at their peak. So then I sit down with people and say, okay, who was at their peak in 52 when he won the title? 53, 54, 55 when he last defended it, or April 27, 56 when he retired. Who was at their peak? And people say, well, he should have fought Sonny Liston. I say, Sonny Liston had vanished. He was 11 months into a prison sentence. He hadn't fought for 13 months or 11 months when Rocky retired. Floyd Patterson, Floyd Patterson. Patterson only had 18 fights and he'd been beaten by a guy that only weighed 12 stone. Uh, Bob Sassfield, Bob Sassfield, he'd lost 17 fights. What are you talking about? Uh, uh, Eddie Machin, Eddie Machin, Eddie Machin had six fights. How can he fight him? Uh, Zora Foley, Zora Foley got beat by Jimmy Slade. Uh, Jimmy Slade, Jimmy Slade did. No, Jimmy Slade got beat by Nina Valdez. Nina Valdez fought a final eliminator against Archie Moore. The winner of that got smashed to bits by Rocky. Come and tell me, who are these guys he avoided? Wait for it, they're not there. I feel like we've answered criticism number one. Next, number two. Then. Number two. So the period that he is heavyweight champion of the world, <coughs> 1952 to 1956, mm. is an era of segregation in yes. the United States. Does it help Rocky Marciano that he is a white fighter in a white man's world? It, it does indeed, but you know he's the first white champion for about 13 or 14 years. It, it does help Rocky that he was a white fighter. 
because the white public certainly warmed to Rocky. People warmed to Rocky. There's no two ways about that. But, but getting back a little bit to the first criticism, there isn't a young black fighter that he doesn't fight because there isn't a young black fighter out there with any credentials. There is, by, as I say, 58, but in 56, when he finally hangs his gloves up, there's no one there. I mean, Archie Moore was having something like his 275th fight, if I'm not mistaken, and he wins the final eliminator for the right to challenge. So, And he beats a black man. So there's a black man fighting another black man for the right to fight Marshawn, and they're the two best men on the planet other than Rocky at that point. So it benefits in the sense that if you're a white heavyweight champion in 1952, then you can be sold completely across America. So what happened with Rocky is he's a better commodity because Ezra Charles and Jersey Joe Walcott, that's not going to be shown all over America because they're two black men. Let's get that absolutely right. But Rocky Marciano is going to be shown all over America. It's, wow. as, it's as simple as that. That's a really interesting point because I hadn't considered that, you know, the whole dissemination of the fight is, uh, mm. is part of the game, isn't it? So I'm interested in his fight with Joe Lewis, and I had a look at it. Uh, it's really interesting because uh, he does that thing of kind of making himself small, staying staying low, and staying in really close to Joe. And as a boxing neophyte, as I am, I was wondering what was going on because I wanted to see, like, big swinging punches. And it's more like he's he's an irritant to Joe Lewis. He's, like, just clinging to him and, and being like, Joe can't get at him. Well, he, he needs to... He needs to take away all of Joe's advantages. Joe's naturally tall, or at least four inches taller. Joe's about 18 or 20 pounds heavier. Plus, Joe's got all the experience. So mm. he needs to take away all of Joe's advantages. He needs to take away all of, the, all of the room Joe needs for his punches. And the closer he is, the less room there is for yeah. Joe, especially as he, he, backs, he backs Joe up to the ropes all the time. And what Rocky does, he just bullies him. He just bullies him. You know, there's a great story attached to the end of that fight, and you can fill in the gap. After the fight, everyone goes to, to Joe Louis' changing room. There's meant to be... It's like... It's like people gathering around the feet of some religious icon. Uh, so there's Rocky there crying and holding on to Joe Lewis. Because he felt Lewis. really badly he, he, about... He felt, he about, felt terrible. It was, his, it, was, it was his hero. Yeah, and he knocked out his hero. Exactly. Sugar Ray Robinson's there, but then you read other stories. There's about 30 people in this changing room. <laughs> it's, it's probably all rubbish, but who cares? It sounds like a good story, and I'm going with it as fact. Okay, that is a cavalcade of information. I need to pause. I need to digest. And then I will come back to you with more hunger for facts. Let's have some ads. Sports stars. They're like superheroes. But they're actually real. Which is why we've made a podcast about them. You see... They've all got a story. But too many of these stories were cut short. Kobe Bryant. Payne Stewart. Flo jo, Phil Hughes. Justin Fashion You. We're writing episodes about all of them. And sadly, many more. Death of a Sports Star, a new series from Crowd Network. So there is a point where Boxing Illustrate, the great boxing magazine, uh, claims to have tested Rocky's <laughs> right punch. hand, his punch. I don't know how they work this out, Katie, but they claim that there is more explosive energy in his punch than in armour piercing bullets, which makes me wonder, Buncey... Why did it knock everybody out? Why, well, not only that, why does he retire at 32 in an era where fighters are going 
deep into their 30s, into their 40s. He's a man who came from nothing, who wants money. Not only does he retire young, but he stays retired. Yeah, which is, which is stay. He nearly comes back in 1959 when a man called Ingemar Johansson knocks out Floyd Patterson. He nearly comes back. He buys an, a very expensive toupee because he's really <laughs> vain. And so he can train in it, look like it's normal and it won't fall off. Anyway... The reason why he, I think he has to retire, first of all, there are some fighters coming up on the horizon. Floyd Patterson's not going away. Uh, Eddie Machin's going to be around. Cleveland Williams, Zora Foley, they're not going away. And also, Sonny Liston at some point is going to get out of prison, come back, and he's going to be bad and mad, which, of course, he was. But more than that, he's ruined his body. So I think his wear, the wear and tear uh, on his body was taking a toll. I think he had his... Glasses on the future. And at that point, when he knocks out Archie Moore, knocks Archie Moore out, I think, in the ninth round, that particular night, at that point, at midnight that night, there is no one left. There's no one knocking on the door. There's no Ali like there was in the 60s, chasing Floyd Patterson, chasing Sonny Liston. There's no George Foreman like there was in the 70s, chasing Joe Frazier, chasing Ali. There's not even a Tyson Fury with Anthony Joshua chasing. There's nothing. There is no one. He's climbed every mountain. Bingo, baby. He's done every single thing. At midnight that night, he's the champion of the world, and there isn't another man on the planet that could compete with him if they'd have had a fight eight the next morning. Mm. So what impact does that retirement make? It's 1956, he holds a press conference at the Hotel Sheldon in the middle of New York. Is the young Billy taking note of this? Is the nation taking note of this? I think it, people expected it. I mean, there's a lot of rumours. In fact, in the change in the dressing room after the Archie Moore fight, he speaks to Peter Wilson, the, the journalist from the Daily Mirror, and he basically pulls Wilson aside, and he says, uh, "Peter, that's it. That's it. I'm, I'm finished. I'm not. I can't do anymore. I can't. I promised Barbara, his wife. I promised the kids. I promised myself. I promised my family. I'm going to walk away." And then I think there's a few months where Al Wilde, he's he's wily manager, very one of the nastiest human beings in the history of boxing, and that is a fearsome piece of competition I don't think he can find anything that makes it really financially worthwhile because there is nothing Mm. at at that point even going forward there's nothing just yet you know he's got to either take 18 months out or two years out and come back or he's got to fight guys that are not really quite there yet Um, and is it seen as end of an era oh yes absolutely so so young Billy Joel who is about six or seven at this point yeah he definitely would have been watching his fights this would have been front page news yeah and he and also Rocky at that point fancies he already wants to become a wants to do a bit of the showbiz stuff not quite like Sugar Ray Robinson did because Robinson could sing and dance yeah. and dance in different styles but Rocky fancies being in front of the mic talking you know it's late it's 1956 TV's yeah. expanding you know it's, it's getting, the TV's are getting bigger there's more channels there's more variety there's more shows on TV and so he, he starts doing commentary he starts, starts doing commentary for fights themselves but yeah. he keeps being on chat shows so so he's liking that life lifestyle you know yeah. he's getting that bit he's getting that bit of lifestyle man so bit so, so there's no way that young billy will not have seen him so rocky is indestructible in the ring but the end when it comes for him is tragic and unexpected he's only 45 years old he's in a plane crash a light airplane on a night flight mm. it's a bad story because the pilot almost definitely should not have been flying, didn't have, didn't have the necessary hours and, and ignored advice. And 
I think, definitely led to the crash. Um, in fact, he died the day before his 46th birthday. And it's a, it's a bizarre route because he's flying out to somewhere in the middle in the Midwest. But the next day, he's flying to Florida to, to celebrate his 46th birthday with his family. And it's... So odd thing, he's, he's going out to get some award and maybe give a speech. And one of the guys in the plane with him is a young kid whose father was a known and notorious gangland figure who died a couple of years earlier. And he fought under a couple of names, this, this guy, Farrell, his name was. Uh, that was, that was his, one of his ring names. He dies on the plane as well. And part of the reason for going to wherever it was they were flying to before they, before they crashed was to, for, for Rocky to give some kind of speech at some kind of function for this guy. But it was already late when they were flying. Nothing, it doesn't add up. None of, none of that crash adds up. If the crash is at 10 o'clock in the morning, then you can see in the afternoon or the evening they're doing this speech and they're going to have this function. Rocky's going to be honoured. He's going to praise all sorts of characters. Then he's going to get on a plane and go to Florida. Because it, it doesn't add up. It's, a, it's, it's weird. There, there, there's something odd there. There's, there's just something that doesn't add up. It just doesn't make sense. And the, it might be nothing more sinister than Rocky was on a $1,000 appearance fee. And he was probably not telling anybody because he liked to have that money because he would have a new place he was going to hide it under a mattress. It may have been nothing more sinister than that. I don't think it is anything more sinister than that. I mean, you know, let's, you know, Rocky's always been connected with Italian Americans. And because his management um, were the mob, even though his manager wasn't directly connected to the mob, his manager was from Morocco or somewhere originally, but he was working for a company that was mob controlled uh, it's always suggested that Rocky's a mob fighter well, of course he is a mob fighter everyone in the 50s was a mob fighter whether you were Italian Jewish or black or Cuban you were a mob fighter because you couldn't get a break unless you fought for someone who was in the mob I mean but the other thing that Rocky was, remember, and, and I've mentioned this already is that he was this giant hero to Italian Americans a living larger-than-life giant hero to Italian-Americans. And invariably... I mean, right, you're American, yeah? Yeah. Right. Have you ever been in a room, uh, any kind of Italian function, where someone doesn't nudge you and go like that? It's just the way it works! Every fight I go to, anyone that looks like an Italian mobster at ringside, someone will nudge you and say... He's with the... Uh, yeah, know. there's always, like, eyebrows being yeah, raised. Exactly, and... yeah. He's with the Margarita family. Yeah. Yeah. He's with the Fiorentina family. I mean, it's it's a yeah. spoof. So so that's what happens with Rocky. Mm. It's this, it, you know, it, it's this, it's this, it's, it's association. There is something definitely about that plane crash that doesn't, it doesn't ring true, Tom. There's something, it doesn't make sense. I know he's, I know he's due in Florida next day for his birthday. Mm. It doesn't add up. After he dies, Steve, there's a very interesting afterlife situation regarding <laughs> a computer simulation. It's mm. the super fight, Marciano <laughs> versus Ali. Yes. What is going on with this? Well, you know what? The, there was an attempt in the 70s to destroy all, 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 all versions of this, but luckily one, literally one version survived. It took a week to film, if I'm not mistaken, and they filmed it before the death. Mm. It hadn't been screened, but they, they shot it obviously before he died. Though. So a 
a real fight. Oh, no, with... no, 75 one-minute rounds. Basically, there's, there's this crackpot in Florida who mm-hmm. builds a computer about the size of this studio. Right. And, and This and, is in the late 60s. No, this is, this is about 67, 68. And, yeah. he, and, he, and he comes up with all these fights. So he sticks into the machine, you know, Jersey Joe Walcott, literally sticks in. It's like a lump of paper. I mean, it's like a, such a spoof, the thing. He's got, I mean, it's just a, it's a comedy. And word spreads about this. It's quite funny. People go ballistic. And Ali, who's in exile of his own at that particular time, having yeah. refused to cross the line, uh, his draft board in Houston. And he doesn't make the final. So this guy comes up with a great idea. He wants to try and get these two people together. Ali needs money. Rocky loves money. Ali was skint, basically, mm-hmm. working, living on handouts. And Rocky loves money. So he does a deal with the two of them. They announce it on TV that they're going to have this fight. 75 one-minute rounds. They fall with gloves, with the toupee, and with red ketchup for blood. And bizarrely, it's a much better fight than people think. And you just say, you just get a sense of how Rocky would have dealt with the brilliance of Ali. So but it's also, choreographed. It's cho- well, it's choreographed, but they throw punches, but not okay. full-blooded punches. All right. So it's somewhere between a dance, it's somewhere between an exhibition, and it's yeah. somewhere between just a bit too much pride. I mean, Rocky's yeah. permanently walking around holding himself in. Yeah, and Ali at that point's already got his love handles coming up. So they have this great 75 one-minute round, and they and this film is going to go out on, on general release. It takes an awful lot of time, there's all sorts of rights, and there's two different endings to this film. Hmm. In the American one, Rocky wins, but in the British one, Ali wins, and it gets shown eventually on BBC. 11 million people watch the damn thing. It, 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 it's this kind of forgotten thing. People think, oh, it was just a computer simulation, or are oh, they just dance. No, these guys train for like a month or so to look good. And as I say, to me personally, I love it because it just gives you a little insight. You know, Rocky wouldn't have beaten the best Ali. He wouldn't have beaten the Ali from the 60s. But Rocky against the Ali from the 70s, from the major fights, who was who had slowed down drastically, mm. who spent time on the ropes, who knows? That would have been an interesting fight. Mm. Even with even conceding all the height and the weight. But the Ali in the 60s, no one beats that Ali, period. But in the 70s, that's a really fun fight. Casey, what an endorsement for the manufacturer of that toupee. That it would stay on someone's head while you're being pummeled by Muhammad Ali. Absolutely, yeah. That, yeah. Should, that should be there in their brand title. Well, if it, if it isn't, just just a toupee company now. Yeah, <laughs> Rocky, Rocky Head. Steve, what would you say is the legacy of Rocky Marciano today? Is he still a revered figure culturally in America, or is he frozen in time, a sort of relic from a, a bygone era? I think it's a bit of both, really, Tom. I mean, I think I think he is still revered. People do still talk about him. And when you, as I say, when you look a bit closer at his career, you realise that one or two of the things you thought are not actually true. And he's without a doubt stuck in a different period in time, a historical period in time, what I call the black and white period. But that's part of his attraction, really, is that he belongs to this bygone age or whatever you want to call it. But it's not that long ago. I mean, you know, I'm not, I don't classify myself as an old man, but Rocky was fighting you know, six or seven years before I was born. And, I, you know, and I, I don't consider myself an old man. So people like my father, who, again, isn't, isn't an old, old man. You know, he remembers getting those newspaper reports. So that was how we found out about things. We couldn't go to Five Live. You know, we couldn't go online. People queued 200 long to buy the first edition of the Evening News and Evening Standard at 10 in the afternoon. Sorry, 10 in the morning, 11 in the morning, because the fight had finished in America at 4.35. And you didn't know. You were mm. queuing to get that paper. I mean, this is 
So it belongs to a different period, yeah. And right now, at cruiserweight, he'd be making more money than any of the fighters out there if he had half of the fights he had. That's as simple as that. He would have just been a beast, a monster. And if people want to see him at his most monstrous and beast-like, what's the fight they should look up on YouTube? Probably the, the last fight, the Archie Moore fight, because he he drops Archie with all sorts of punches left and right, and he gets dropped himself quickly, and he finishes it viciously. And if I could just add one thing, there's two great Rockies in boxing. There's Rocky Balboa, and then there's Rocky Marciano. And everyone just assumes that Rocky Balboa, written and acted and directed by Sly Stallone or whatever it was, he bases that on a man called Chuck Wepner, who fights, which he did partly, he did partly, but if you dig a little deeper, he'll tell you. He said, the real Rocky, the real seed came from when I first saw Rocky Marciano with Muhammad Ali in that 75 one-minute round fight. That's where the real Rocky was based on the real Rocky. Steve Bunce, it has been a pleasure as always, and maybe we'll see you again for lyric number 91, which is Liston beats Patterson. I'd like to think so. I'd be disappointed if I'm not called in for that one. <laughs> I feel like I'm getting pretty gosh darn savvy, Tom, about boxing. I think, Cassie, you are no longer a neophyte in your words. I think you're becoming something of a boxing connoisseur. I would characterize myself as positively bloodthirsty. (laughs) I like to see the pain being brought, Tom. And speaking of pain being brought, what do we have on tap for next week? It's Liberace. Katie Liberace. Oh, I think he is ace. I can't wait to get into that. If you want more excitement in the podcast department to tickle your ear holes, what do you got for us, Tom? Katie, there is a great new series called Human Resources, which explores the true story of Britain's involvement in the transatlantic slave trade. It's hosted by Moya Lothian McLean. She's a journalist and descendant of black African slaves and white slave owners. She'll be tracing the echoes of the slave trade across the United Kingdom. Yeah, the series takes us right across the nation, Katie, through rural Welsh clothing districts all the way to one of the best-known chocolate factories in Birmingham. You can find human resources wherever you get your podcasts. And in the meantime, Katie, if people want to follow you, I, and the show, yes. our social handle is at spread that fire people can also email us fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk operators are standing by crowd network a place where you belong I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. 
Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.